Welcome to the show, Entrepreneurs in Conversation with moi, Geraldine Jippé. I joyfully sit down every week with entrepreneurs, innovators, and creators to pick their brilliant, fascinating minds. My mission is to help them share their stories of struggle and success. The rich details from openly conversing serves as sound advice for us to hear and hopefully learn from. Enjoy the listen. Coming up on Entrepreneurs in Conversation with Geraldine. To build great teams, you need to know what skills you have. And what I actually found was is that I knew what people were paid to do because I could see their role profile. We didn't have any kind of skills profile. Mm-hmm. So I, I know what they're paid to do. I didn't know exactly know what they could do. And mm-hmm. that's kind of where the, the journey started for me in, into this space. Um, and that kind of molded into when I was uh, transitioning from South Africa, where I'm originally from. Hi, James. Welcome to Entrepreneurs in Entrepreneurship with Geraldine. I hope you're well and thank you for your time today. Thank you for joining me. Uh, we'll be discussing all about your business, your startup, and how actually you started. So first and foremost, would you please introduce yourself to our audience? Hi, thank you. Uh, my name is James Nuffer. I am the CEO and founder of Candidly. I'm an early stage startup based out of Toronto. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, I mean, you've been um, in the HR industry for a little while, but before to jump into your platform and your solution, tell us more about you, how you started in HR and why you move on from HR to tech and platforms and all that. Well, my, my, my background is not there. It didn't start in HR. Um, I kind of moved into it from... Uh, from a more of a necessity of space than anything else. Um, I spent a lot of my time in banking technology over a number of years. Um, and, uh, I spent my last few years in, in corporate uh, looking at uh, tr- agile transformation. So a lot of my focus was how do you create these uh, high-performing product teams uh, within a large organization? And, and the bank I was working for at the time was uh, 40-odd thousand people. Um, and that's where I kind of found this fascination with, with the, the behavior, the culture, people uh, around high-performing teams and how organizational strategy, HR strategy actually supports that. And mm-hmm. so that was where I started getting into this, this space of, of uh, understanding teams and, and getting the best out of them. And as part of that exercise that I was doing at the time, I was trying to understand um, what kind of skills we had in the organization. And to build great teams, you need to know what skills you have. And what I actually found was is that I knew what people were paid to do because I could see their role profile. We didn't have any kind of skills profile. Mm-hmm. So I, I know what they're paid to do. I didn't know exactly know what they could do. And for me, mm-hmm. that's kind of where the, the journey started for me in, into this space. Um, and that kind of molded into when I was uh, transitioning from South Africa, where I'm originally from, into Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, I found that I was getting uh, a bit of um, what do you call it? Uh, discrimination is probably the best word I can use because of uh, the mm-hmm. fact that I had a lack of Canadian experience, mm-hmm. even though I was well educated um, and well experienced. So that was kind of the trigger that got me into into the recruitment space. Is is that I, I found that it's it's really it's not an equitable process, and that it's such a subjective process that people go through that you don't really get the opportunity to show people what you can do or be considered based on what you can do. It's more how well-written your resume is and whether you have the key points they're looking for. 
So that was really how I, I transitioned into this space. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's beautiful because, I mean, you move on to a very corporate world, to a very startup world. What has, what's the change actually you had to face when you decided to jump from another? And on top of that, I think you're working also with your wife, if I'm not mistaken. So what was, you know, the process for you guys to decide to give up everything that you had in the corporate world to decide to move on to creating a beautiful startup and to solve that tricky problem? Well, you know, this, uh, it's, a, it's a good question because for, for me and my wife, when we decided we were going to do this, and in the beginning, it was, it was me that was going to spend my time and focused on it. Uh, and, yeah. and Michelle just found her way into, into the organization because uh, we needed it. We needed somebody on board. Um, we agreed to do this mainly for the fact that we just were tired with the corporate world. Uh, mm-hmm. Both both me and my wife uh, come from uh, pretty successful corporate careers uh, mm-hmm. very well. We had a nice life in South Africa. We had, you know, uh, you know the, we lived above average, uh, if you want to say that. But our time and effort was consumed by our work. Uh, everything mm-hmm. was consumed by work. And we, we had a, at the time we decided to move, we were, Michelle was pregnant with our second child. And we really, moving to Canada was a decision to, because we wanted a better life and to be able to spend more time with our children. And what we knew for a fact was, is if we spent our life in corporate, it was never going to change. Mm-hmm. The time and effort we were putting into our jobs where the payout at the end of the day, um, it just wasn't enough. It wasn't enough for what we were giving up. So we really thought that for us, we should focus on something that's our own, build that up, spend our time and focus doing that, and then hopefully at the end of the day we'll be able to you know, uh, have more of a better work-life balance than we did in the corporate mm-hmm. world. So it, just, it, was a, it was a difficult change for us. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, Michelle gets to spend uh, her time working and more time with the kids. She's, you know, both of us are here when the kids get home. Uh, we get to spend yeah. time with them. Um, and we also get to do our jobs. And that's great. Yes. We're not kept at the office and that like we used to be. Let's dig a bit more into that because, I mean, being an entrepreneur and a parent, I mean, I'm all about that because as a mompreneur, it's not always easy. You have to be productive. You have to be, you know, very strict in terms of your deadline, etc. How do you manage? Because you have to be efficient at some point, you know, in order to make sure that you have enough time to do what you have to do and not being, you know, eaten by everything that you have to do for business and have time also for your kids. How do you balance that? Oh, I would like to say that I, I balance it well, but I don't. It's it's a difficult one. Um, the thing I found with that is is that it's, it's a guilt trip either way. If I don't spend enough time with my family, I feel guilty because I'm not spending enough time there. If I spend too much time with my family, I feel guilty because I'm not spending enough time on the business. Um, because at mm-hmm. the end of the day, the business is our, our future. It's, it's what's going to support and, and, and feed my family and house and clothe them and whatever it may be. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I, I am torn between am I doing enough on both sides all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing I found is you've got to have a great partner uh, in this. Um, you know, Michelle has been the, the kind of she's, – she's been understanding, um, even sometimes when I push the envelope a bit too far. Um, but, you know, you need somebody to lean on. So you need somebody that can actually help you find the time and space. You know, Michelle – Working with us in the, in the business is, is been 
to alleviate some of the stress on myself mm-hmm. and kind of share the workload so that I, I can find time for family and stuff like that. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's that's what you need. So, you know, you've got to be give and take. But the one thing I do know is that when I'm moving a bit out of my, my comfort zone, when I'm spending too much time in the office, uh, Michelle will always bring me back in. She'll always bring me back to earth and say, now it's time to stop working or shut down for the day or, you know, take the rest of the day off. And um, as long as I listen to her, then then things seem to, to work out well. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. So, I mean, let's go back to uh, the platform and, you know, the industry, because the HR industry has shifted so much and in so many ways over the last couple of years, even I would say decade. What's your input? What's your insight about that? How, you know, these changes and the evolution, especially in the developer market? So, that you know, my, my personal feeling on this is that, yes, HR is changing, but in some ways it's just more of the same. And it's kind of what moved me into into the idea for Candidly is we, we, we basically looked at HR and we said, you know, we got to make things more efficient and, you know, let's bring in automation and automate these processes and all of that. But going through this automation process, trying to, you know, bring in these tools and that that speed up the hiring and screening process and all of that, we've actually become victims of our own you know, mm-hmm. desires. Because when I started digging into it, right, I, put in a, I spent a good few months researching the space. And mm-hmm. when I looked at, you know, just recruitment in general, never mind software developers, it, it became a numbers game. You either have your verticals, which are, are specialized in a single space, you know, that are focusing on a specific area like uh, sales or marketing or software development. And then you have your horizontals like your Indeeds and Glassdoors and LinkedIn's and ZipRecruiters. And, you know, these are billion dollar companies you're talking about, but their goal is volume, it's numbers. You know, mm-hmm. when I started looking into this, it's kind of, and the best way I can explain it is, when you're applying for a job now, especially if you're not in a niche space, especially if you're not a specialist, uh, mm-hmm. you're, you're pretty much just a goldfish. And the way it is is that you're, you're a goldfish in a massive pond of goldfish and everybody's mm-hmm. screaming to be noticed. Everybody's screaming to say, you know, look at me, look at me. But as an employer, as a recruiter, when you're looking at this, this, this sea of goldfish, you know, they all look the same. And so what they're doing is they're trying to find ways to disqualify uh, people from the from the sea right it's good disqualify goldfish and that and that was a core thing for me is that everything was geared to disqualify mm-hmm. um everything was looking at i have a pool, pool of people how do i disqualify people to get down to the top 10 or 15 percent mm-hmm. and when you dig down into that top 10 or 15 percent and you start to look at it you go well this top 10 or 10 or 15 percent is based on a subjective context so uh job descriptions i think the lack of standardization in job descriptions, you know, it yes. is, is, is a major contributor. Every job description mm-hmm. for every company is different. Um, if you look at, I mean, LinkedIn, if you create a template for, if you use their software developer template, for example, it automatically throws in a computer science degree, um, which is not necessarily the case anymore. It's not something you need. But job descriptions are either cut and paste. They're either copied from uh, the internet or they just reuse time and time again and they change little factors. I know from my experience, mm-hmm. you know, I would have to change a job description to fit a salary band. So I, mm-hmm. I submitted a job description. They would send it back to me and say, well, 
there's not enough responsibility in this this role to justify the salary ban. So I would throw stuff in to to justify the salary ban because that's what the band was paying. And mm-hmm. but the role description wasn't according to the HR policy, it wasn't the right thing. So we kind of manipulate these things. Um the other things I've found just in my in my couple of years I've been doing this is especially if you get into companies that are are not uh, the people that are hiring are not technology orientated they yes. will they will create profiles from the internet that'll state three or five years experience you know a computer science degree um, and then call it an entry level position mm-hmm. so you want that quality but at the cost of an entry level and the thing is is that there's two aspects to this my feeling is one is you, they don't know what they, they they need to ask for, and on the other side is is that they think is that they put the job description too. Um, I don't, I'm trying to think of my best word here, but if they make it too easy, then more people will apply, which will make it more difficult to find the goal mm-hmm. that you're looking for. Yeah. Um, so that's that for me is 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 just kind of leads into because of this volume has forced us to automate. Mm-hmm. that we wanted to automate or needed to automate it we've been forced to you have 400 people applying for a job you cannot do it by yourself so we automate these processes and then we mm-hmm. say to ourselves well we automate and because we've automated we're removing bias because now it's not a human deciding it's a computer deciding the mm-hmm. that is is that the people that code the automation the algorithm or ai whatever you want to call it they're coding it with their own bias in there and I mean, that's been proven time again. Amazon had an issue with it a few years ago as well, is that you can't uncode bias. It's there. And I'm talking co- unconscious bias. It doesn't necessarily have to be a bias. A conscious bias can be an unconscious bias. Um, mm-hmm. um, and so that's kind of what led me into into Candidly. Uh, yeah. Let's, let's dig into, because like what you said is very important. Like the technology sometimes is biased. Not necessarily the technology on its own, but the creator, yes. let's say. So how, what was your strategy? What has been your strategy um, towards a market that has like a tendency to be biased um, in order to, you know, successfully, you know, uh, get Candidly on the map? So we started, so Candidly is a marketplace. And when you're building a marketplace, it's probably one of the hardest type of startups to build. Um so we had to understand both sides of the market. And, and what we had to first start off is, is understanding the software developer side. And, mm-hmm. and exactly to the point, like I said, is that software developers felt like goldfish. When we really dug down into it, uh, we, we started off with what's the purpose of Candidly and uh, you know the need we're filling. And the need we started off with is I want a job. So for software developers, their need was I want a job. But after we started mm-hmm. really getting into it, it the need for us was not I want to get a job is I want to be noticed mm-hmm. um, because it's not you know it, it wasn't the fact that they were getting interviews and not getting jobs is that they were not getting interviews mm-hmm. we applied to 30 40 positions uh, and I can tell you from just you know that I, I speak to developers a lot is you know one developer I spoke to a week ago applied for 35 positions on LinkedIn wow. he spent about 30 to 40 minutes on every application so that his resume was done properly and his cover letter and LinkedIn shows him how many of those resumes were opened. Mm-hmm. That was only three. So out of 35 applications, only three were read. Right? Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of the, the thing that they're struggling with is, is I want to be noticed. If we, when, I, when I spoke to them about what's more important, getting interviews or getting feedback, 
the biggest thing was getting feedback because when I get a job interview, when I apply for a position, I know why I got accepted. I know why mm-hmm. I'm there. But if I didn't mm-hmm. get that interview, if I didn't get accepted, I want to know why I wasn't because I can learn from that. Yeah. And and so for us, we re- to understand, to build a marketplace, we had to really understand the marketplace and understand what it is we were solving for. And it wasn't about building a great resume. It wasn't about building a profile and all that. We, we spoke to the fact that I, would, I just want to be noticed for what I'm able to do. When I apply for a position, I want to be noticed. And that's how we, we tackled that and, and built the concept of Candidly around that uh, for mm-hmm. developers. And on the employer side, what we found was, the the same thing as I, I alluded to earlier is just that when you put a job into the market, you're getting two, three hundred. You know, some of the research we've seen, and I don't want to pick on any particular platform, but you know, they needed six hundred applications to get one hire. Now, out of those six hundred applications, the how many did they not look at? How many were disqualified without consideration? Um, how many did not have? And this is where it comes into it because once you try, once you have 600 applications, your focus is how do I disqualify people? And when you have that mindset and you go into it, you go, well, okay, um, let's put education in. So must have this education that takes out a few people, must have this work experience that takes out a few people, uh, must be uh, this location. So as I said, that's that's kind of the approach I felt that recruitment was doing or how screening was going is how do I get of people out of the list not how do i identify the right people for the list um and so what we when we approached employers and started speaking to them we started to understand what it is that that was affecting them in the day-to-day process and how much time do they spend screening resumes because at the end of the day they get down to maybe 20 or 30 that they shortlist they still got to go through that 20 or 30 and on average the statistics show they're only spending six seconds on it anyway and because they're looking for particular things that stand out and you know if you shortlist five then you're heavily reliant on the fact that that resume is accurate there's no um misrepresentation somebody hasn't embellished their ability to do something Uh, and so you may take down to the last five and go through those interviews and those resumes that have been um may have been uh i don't want to say fake but misrepresented i think misrepresented was the right word um, I spoke to a developer a while ago and um, I asked him uh, about his profile he had on our platform and I was speaking to him about, you know, your profile on our, on our platform, you stated yourself that you have beginner skills in, in these in these particular programming skills. But I checked your resume and you said you're an expert. And I said, well, have you created your profile incorrectly? And his response to me is no. Um, my profile is correct. My resume is incorrect. Because... He wasn't getting noticed by saying, I just know this stuff. He had to express he was an expert. And the thing that came from this, which I found very fascinating, and I've only really learned about this in the last few months, but imposter syndrome. And what was happening is, is that developers were embellishing their resumes so they could get the interview, but then creating a massive amount of anxiety when they went into the interview because they misrepresented their knowledge and ability. And so when they were going through the interview process, that, that anxiety that they had about being asked questions they wouldn't be able to answer because they're supposedly expert in this case um, made it even more difficult to get through the interview process. So, so they felt like they were, they were imposters to, to what they actually could do. So 
for me, that's where I, I, I focus so much on the space. It's just, it, it's not one thing. It's kind of everything is, is, is together. It's just creating this, this process that's, you know, candidates aren't happy. You know, 60%, 63%, I think it is, of candidates drop out of the application process. And 53% of candidates don't even hear, get feedback on, on applications. So, you know, I looked at that and I said, this is not right. It can't work like this. Um, you know, we can't be doing it this way anymore. You are building a double-sided platform with kind of a chicken egg problem. How did you tackle that challenge? Yeah, I, I think it's, you know, exactly, I, you know, the chicken and egg story. It, for me, I always say, refer to it as it's chicken, egg, chicken, egg, chicken, egg, chicken, egg, because you can't build one and the other. You've got to build them in, in conjunction. So so the way we tackle it is is that we you've got to get just enough customers on board or employers on board um, with enough developers, and then you build up your customer base, your developer base, customer base, developer base. But the one thing we found with, with kind of our strategy is is that you need to get your customers on the journey with you. Um, so your employers need to understand what it is you're trying to do. Um, and with developers as well is, you know, with what we do and the way we do it is there's no short answer or short uh, solution. Um, it takes time to build these relationships and build these profiles and, and create the trust between the two sides. And that doesn't come overnight. But with, with us is what we sold to employers right in the beginning, in the early days with our early adopters was we sold them an idea around a marketplace where there would be equitable hiring processes, where they could put hand on heart and say, you know, we're following um, equitable hiring processes as best as we can and, and being part of that journey. Um, and with developers, we started talking to them about having this single source of uh, information of their skill set that they can use for every profile, so every application for every uh, job they want. Um, instead of having to update their resume every single time they want to do a job. So you've, you've got a, a it's, um, it's an expression my father-in-law uses. Uh, you've got to, you've got to sell the sizzle, right? Before you actually see the steak, you've got to sell the sizzle, right? Um, and that's what we've done. Uh, we spent a lot of time trying to understand both sides of our marketplace and, and building those relationships. And, you know, it's slow going. It's not an easy thing to do. Um, but once, The feeling is, and we're not there yet, but once we believe we have credibility on both sides, that developers actually believe that we're in it for the right reasons, um, that we're in it for them. It's not a – the one thing I've always said about, um, especially in the developer space, but it's kind of a generic thing as well, candidates seen, are seen as a commodity, an asset, um, you know, something you transact with. Uh, and for me, that's – I want it to be – I want it to be something more. I want it Yeah, they, we, we, I don't talk about recruitment platforms because I never like being called a recruitment platform. Uh, I like to call it an employment opportunity platform because that's what, that's what our, our, our passion is, is how do we create as much employment opportunity for those on our platform as possible on both sides of the marketplace. And so that's what we had to sell to, to, to get people involved on, on both sides. What are your plans regarding the development of your startup? I mean, in terms of growing the business and scaling your venture, um, what do you have in mind? So we've, we've, we've been building for two years, but we've only been in the market for about three months now, three, four months. Um, and at this point in time where we are, growth is not our, our focus. But 
one of the things that we, we learned early on when we started doing a lot of the beta testing and that uh, into this product was that it's got to be, like I said, it's about employment opportunity. So you've got to have a bigger value proposition than just finding people jobs and connecting people. And, and that's why when we, when we built out the app and built up the platform, I wanted to build an environment or an ecosystem where developers could grow their employment opportunity and create employment opportunities. So it wasn't just about understanding your skill sets. It was actually understanding what your skill sets are, where your strengths are, where your gaps are, giving you feedback on that information so that you could personally develop, connecting you with other developers, connecting you with material, connecting you with resources, uh, anything that would help you um, build a profile that would get you more uh, more employment opportunity. And the same on the employer side. It's not just about finding skills, but it's about understanding what skills are in the market, building talent pipelines, identifying talent that's just entering the market. Because, you know, um, and I, I don't want to jump too much around, but one of the things about Canadly is, is I wanted it right from the start, is, is come as you are. It's one of our values. Because we didn't want to discriminate against anybody that is just starting in the market. So whether you are... Um, on your first day of your first programming course, you can join Canadian. Whether you're two years in or two months in, it doesn't really matter. The goal was to build a platform that would give you accurate real-time information on where you stand within your peer group so that you know that if I'm going into programming, uh, this is where I am, this is where my peers are, and now I know where I have to, to reach to stop being employable, to be noticed. Um, so information is just so important to this process. Um, and so, yeah, so that's when, you know, when we look at scale and growth for us, it's about product market fit. Once we figured that out for both sides and we can bring them together in a way that's beneficial to them individually and as, as a collective, that's when we will start looking at scaling and growth. Uh, but until that point, until we've got that 100%, then we wouldn't really look at expanding too quickly. So we definitely know that the industry is facing uh, some challenge regarding, you know, getting women on board from an education, educational standpoint and also on the job market. Um, what's your strategy in order to answer, you know, this issue that you, we have very few women, you know, um, jumping into the technology bandwagon, if I may say, uh, how do you plan actually to solve that issue? Yeah. So, so, you know, uh, you know, not specific to women, but in, in general, diversity and inclusion was a big uh, driver behind the idea for candidly. So, like I said, my background from, I came from South Africa, so I spent a lot of time working in Africa. I, I had teams across 12 countries. And one thing that I got exposed to in my time in Africa was that, you know, access to education and, and that is, is limited. It's, it's, it's not as easily access, accessible as it is around the world, but it doesn't mean that people didn't find ways to learn. So we talk about these non-traditional learning methods. So it's not necessarily about computer science degrees, but it's about, you know, I got online, I've taught myself to code, I've learned, uh, I've got these certifications. And I had people working for me that didn't go to any kind of school, but got their, their certifications online and set the courses themselves and paid for it themselves. And for me, that was a big thing, especially in, in the developer world, where there's a massive shortage of skills, but there's still this this um, barrier of, of meeting certain expectations to be even be considered. And what I wanted to do is, is I did 
democratizing it in some way is allow a platform where everybody could be assessed based on what they're able to do, not what they are, a resume implies they can do. And when it comes to women especially, I, I found just from the few years I've been digging into this is that software development is still seen as a man's place. It's still, it's still a boys' club. Um, some of the women that I've spoken to and interviewed over the, few, the last couple of years, it's been about that there is – it's just kind of this uh, boys kind of language they speak and they, you know, um, and unless you speak that language and, and they're in that space and it's just difficult to, to relate and interact and those kind of things. And I believe things like that are, are preventing more women from entering the space. And, you know, if, if what I've seen to be tr- is to be true, when employers are hiring that, more likely they will hire a male than they will hire a female. And then I feel, and this is my personal opinion on this, but I feel that um, there will be more hiring of female developers if there is a specific requirement in that organization to have more female representation. It wouldn't be the first choice. Um, and And that's why Candidly is anonymous. So one of the things that we set out was is, is that candidly, uh, when screening for candidates, you screen them by their skills, not by any personal identifiers. So it's completely anonymous. You don't see education. You don't see work experience. You don't see uh, race. You don't see gender. Um, you don't see anything that would, uh, that would create some form of conscious or unconscious bias in that screening process. You're categorized by, do you have the skills to, to do the job? And that's, that's how we match employers and developers. And for me, what I'm hoping is, is that as we can create this more equitable screening process, that it will encourage more females to enter the technology market. And the, and the great thing about technology is, is that it doesn't have to be a computer science degree anymore. You know, boot camps, boot camps are becoming more predominant. Um, there's more people graduating from boot camps than there is from colleges and universities at the moment. And so, you know, getting that education you need is not as difficult to get. And you know, entering the market with, well, hopefully through candidly, but through using anonymity, we're going to create more opportunity for those people that actually have the skills to do the job um, and create that opportunity for them. Being a founder is not always simple, right? So, you know, growing a network, learning the ropes, actually, did you actually enroll yourself in, a, you know, founders or startup program? And if so, did you find it like useful? So the, the one thing I can I can safely say is that an incubator or a founders program or or any one of those things is 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 really valuable if you're a first time founder. Um, you know I come from, uh, you know I have my I have my MBA I have my uh, corporate experience. Um, you know I've I've managed teams of six hundred people across twelve different countries, and I was still unprepared for a lot of what I had to go through. Um, and I made a lot of mistakes on the way. And, and things that I, I look back on now and I say, you know what, in some cases I, I, you know, I coached people in this space and I still made some of the same mistakes that I, I wouldn't have. Because as a founder and, and you know, an entrepreneur, you're so wrapped up in, in deliverables and getting to a certain point and stuff like that, sometimes you can't see the wood for the trees. Um, and so incubators, founders programs, those kind of things, they are they're critical to helping you get just the outside information, the outside knowledge. Um, 
my biggest struggle as a founder, uh, especially coming to Canada with not knowing really anybody, was getting a network of people that have gone through what I've gone through. You know, there's only certain, there's only a founder can actually sit back and go, I understand what you're going through. Um, because, you know, you are responsible for everything. You have the money, the, the night time where you're waking up and you're thinking, how am I going to fund this? Or where's this paycheck coming for this person? Or how am I going to make a customer or get customers on board? Or you're always thinking about everything. And unless you've gone through it, you don't really understand it. And, and for me, the biggest thing I found from them was just speaking to people that understand what I'm going through, you know, not alone in the process. Um, I'm, I'm currently with a, a, a program out of New York called Human Ventures, um, and they run a program for founders such as myself called Humans in the Wild. And the reason for, for me connecting with them and, and, and joining them it was very specific to the, their values. So they call themselves human ventures because everything about them is the human. It's about human values, about human need. It's, it's not about building products for f- profit. It's about building products to add value to people's lives. Um, and so when you, when you join a program like this, especially in the type of business I'm trying to create, um, our, our morals, our ethics, our visions, they're so much aligned. Um, that it's 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 just a pleasure to work with them. We we were, c- were compatible. Everybody that's in the program is all working towards the same goal. And when I speak about you know things that are important to me, um, they're understood. Whereas I found I found really in the beginning when I started this and I spoke to investors and that, and I speak about the passion that I have for this this subject, this topic, and what I'm trying to do. You know, um, you know the feedback was tone it down a bit and focus more on how you're going to build it. And you know, don't don't you know, don't use some, uh, don't use too much of the, you know, the, the fantastical talking and thinking and you know the big beliefs and that. Uh, but with like someone like Human Values, I, I felt that that is actually to my advantage. It's one of the things that got me accepted into the program was because of my passion, my belief for what I'm doing. Um, and yeah, building a great product around that is for them is just a byproduct. It's it's the founder. Can you share about the top three lessons you learned along the way? Um, I think top three, my first one, and this is not prioritized, but one of the top three lessons I think I would learn, the first one would be um, that not everybody has an opinion you must listen to. And, and, and the way I say that is, is that I'm, I, I've surrounded myself with some really skilled individuals, and I'm not talking about within my team, I'm talking about my advisory group, and all of that. And I, I put a lot of value into their, their feedback, their comments. Um, and, you know, everything was a bit different. And no, they didn't all say the same thing. Everybody had their own opinion. Um, and I put a lot of weight on their opinion right in the beginning. And it's, it is not to say that anything they said was wrong. But if I look back on it now, I had, if you want to call them gut feelings about what I should have done and how I should have done it. But I relied on my advisors. I, I put my faith in them and, and, and I took it. And I think if I look back on it now, I would say you've got to find a kind of balance. Um, advice is always there and you can get great advice and you can get bad advice. It's not always perfect. Um, but even great advice doesn't make it right. Um, so so for me, is I think if I was more comfortable in this new space that I was back then, because I was, you know, I was a first-time founder. I was starting a new business. I hadn't done it before. I was in a new country. Um, 
And I think I let that influence me too much in my decision making. Whereas, you know, after working through it over time, I found that, you know, some of the decisions I would have made personally were probably going to be the right decisions. Um, but it's not a bad thing. I think the thing I need to say is not a bad thing. Having people challenge you and question you and critique you, um, you know, you've got to have a thick skin. You really got to have a thick skin. I've had people tear my idea to shreds um, on the phone um, and leaving me completely demoralized. Afterwards. Um, but if I hadn't, if I hadn't gone through that process, if I hadn't understand it, I wouldn't have the idea that I have today. I wouldn't have improved what I had today. Um, but in that being said as well, not everything they tore apart was right. Uh, the, the thing that I've learned the most is that you build your idea. I've, I've, I started writing down this idea for Candidly in 2016. So I sat with it for two years developing this idea before I even decided to start a startup. Um, and nobody understands it like you do. Nobody understands your idea like you do. And anybody that comes in is coming in from the context that you give them. So if you have an hour-long meeting with someone and you just, uh, you know, you give them the context of your product, then they only have that context that they get, you gave them. And if you didn't distill that correctly with them, if you didn't clear enough in certain aspects, they're going to shape their opinion based on what you give them and they're going to feed it back to you. And, and so with that, I've learned to take everything with a pinch of salt, but always take everything on. Always listen, always learn, but don't always accept everything for the gospel. Right? You know, I've, I've known people um, through this, this process that have you know, started and funded and sold uh, $100 million companies. Right? And they've said to me themselves, you know, I got it right, but I'm not doing what you're doing. And I'm not in the space you were at this point in time. I haven't. I went through my own journey, so I can tell you from that. And what I'm telling you may not be suitable to what you're doing. Right? So you can take the advice on, you can listen to it, and you can attempt it, or you can just uh, uh, throw it away. It's up to you. But take it at face value that it's, it's it comes from a, co a specific context, and it's a context that you created as a founder. And if you're not distilling your message clear enough, if you've got your value proposition, proposition clear enough, then that's on you to, ref to fix, not for them to understand everything behind your idea that you've been working on for ages. Uh, so I, that was the other, the other aspect of what I learned. Um, and, yeah, I think the biggest, most expensive lesson I learned was um, moving too quickly for the wrong things. So what I'm going to explain about that is, when I started Candidly, I wanted to get Candidly started. I want to start building. Um, I was in Canada. It was my, you know, I'd, I'd been in Canada two days uh, when I incorporated Candidly. And I wanted to start getting building and getting my idea up and all of that. And I had some money in the bank. Uh, and so I outsourced some of the work and, and quite a bit of the, the work. And, you know, I got great work for it. I got, you know, it was quality work and that type of stuff, but it was expensive. It was you know, if I had paced myself, uh, found better ways to do some of the things, you know, learnt about um, maybe people in the market, freelancers, those kind of things, um, you know, built a bit of more of a network in the beginning, um, I could have saved myself quite a bit of money. And it's actually one of my, um, 
one of probably my difficult conversations with investors in the, in the point at this point in time is when we talk about you know how much money we've raised how much we've spent and they say okay but that seems you spent a little bit more than what you should have and i have to explain to them well you know what in the beginning i was a bit uh, wasteful with the money uh, in retrospect um, so the thing that i really come to, to come to learn is is that you have a big idea make it as small as you can mean you have to discard anything and just make your idea as small as you can and then build that and spend money on that i was so focused on the grandiose idea i had behind candidly and how i validate that and build on that and those kind of things that i spent the right money at the wrong time uh, and that's how i like to explain it because the stuff that i'm only looking at now that i paid for two years ago because I wasn't, I haven't been in a position until now to actually take that work on and put it into the product. But I did all that work and research and investment into it two years ago, and I just couldn't use it. So, yeah, it's it's being laser focused, just discarding all the noise and focusing on the core of your product and building that and focusing, on that. and then you build onto it. It's it's not about forgetting what you want to do. It's just focusing on the right things at the right time. Do you have any tips? I mean, do you have maybe three tips that you would like to share with other entrepreneurs, either beginners or, you know, well-experienced entrepreneurs? So the number one advice is a network. Um, build out your network. The the value, you know, I can give a great example. When I first came to Canada, um, I had to build my network from scratch. But I, I fortunately, I had um, one of my investors was involved with a, a group called the YPO, which is a young president's organization. And they're a global entrepreneur group. Um, and he reached out to that network and he got me some meetings. And I spent my first five or six months in Canada going to coffee meetings with all of these people I'd never met before and all different aspects. Um, and, you know, one of them, uh, I think three of them, yeah, three of them are now on my advisory board. Um you know, one is is a former MD for LinkedIn. One's the CEO of a tech company, um, and the other is a CEO of a medical tech company here in Toronto. Um, and then, yeah, there's so the four, there's four because then yeah, there's Freda. So she's a a marketing guru out of out of uh, Washington that I've met through through this uh, this network. Um, and you know, I had I got that network when I when I started here. I made those connections. They came on advisory board. They were advising me. Um, I mean, they've been invaluable to me over the last couple of years. But you know, there was kind of this 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 lull, if you want to call it, during COVID. Um, you know, where things were up in the air and and you don't know what you're doing, uh, and not sure where to go. And everybody was kind of in this flux, trying to get their their head around this new way of living. And when I when I got in touch with Human Ventures and, and got accepted into that program, and I now have part of that network, it's like this whole thing's opened up for me again. Because my advisors, you know, they're well established; they have their own businesses. But this new network I'm in is with all these other founders um, across the states and in Canada, where they've been through this COVID. They're going through it. They're going through the same things I'm doing, um, and. I'm learning so much from them and how they dealt with it and how they tackling it and how they're approaching it and, and we're learning from each other. So networks are invaluable and I'm not talking about networks for just customers and stuff like that. I'm just networks for advice, guidance, um, have coffees with people, um, as many people as you can. You know, there's, 
there's no wasted coffee meeting for me. Um, I've met people that have nothing to do with my business. Um, and I just met them because they saw I was coming to Canada on LinkedIn, for all of example. I said I was coming to Canada on LinkedIn. And they just reached out to me and said, yeah, we should have a cup of coffee. Um, because I was South African, they were South African. And I sat and I had a cup of coffee with them. And, you know, there was nothing to do with my business. But I now know that person. Um, he knows people within the network. He's connecting with people, uh, other people as well. Um, and you just you cannot do this job without it. You just can't. It's impossible. There's an expression I use, and I actually had it tattooed onto my arm when I started this journey. And it's it it's in Arabic, but it, it pretty much means uh, this too shall pass. Everything shall pass. Um, and for me, as an entrepreneur, as a founder, and, and also in my personal life, it helped me a lot as well, is this, this, this concept of impermanence, this concept of understanding that when things are great, they'll stop being great. But when things are bad, they will stop being bad. But there will be great times and there will be bad times. And they all pass. They all go. And they come again. And for a founder, especially, is something you really have to understand that because there's days when I wake up and I am stressed to the hilt about everything. Uh, and the only thing that gets me going through is that I know there's going to be days when everything is going my way. Like the last two weeks for me has been really, really good. And the two weeks before that, they were really, really bad. Um, and it's amazing how just one day can change things around. So as long as you hold on to that fact that it's never going to be as, it's not always going to be as bad as it is, but it's also never going to always be as good as it is. And if you accept that, you can, you can work your way through it. Thank you, James, for joining me on Entrepreneurs in Conversation with Shahaldin. My absolute pleasure. Thanks, Jovin. Have a good day. Here's a preview of the next episode. Just of everyday use, um, by, a, by a user who uses a piece every day, that object becomes a piece of art during the process of, of uh, drinking out of a cup or using a bowl to have a lunch out of it. Um, I'm also, like I said, uh, moving in a different direction, not moving in a different direction, exploring mm -hmm. different ways as well which mm -hmm. is more sculptural. So therefore, still uh, the function is there. There, um, I'm working right now on some sculptural furniture, so mm -hmm. multifunctional, I guess, objects. This is the end of the show. Share the show with your community. Make sure to listen to the next episode on Spotify, iTunes, Stitchers, and Anchor, and more. Follow us on Instagram at ecg.podcast and me, Geraldine GP. Follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. See you next time.